usually, not usually, but always in the past, young people have said, enough's enough, I have something to say, and I'm going to scream my rage through music. They're not doing that now, largely, I think, in part to the fact that I can do it on Twitter and Facebook. Welcome to It's All Journalism. My name is Michael O'Connell here with another podcast about digital news and media and all types of uh, journalism and broadcasting, etc. Today, I've got sort of, we've got sort of a special podcast. Um, I've got Amber Healy, who's been on the podcast a couple of times. She's in uh, the Buffalo area. And uh, Amber, welcome. It's good to hear from you again. Always nice to talk to you, Mike. Okay, and you've set up a really great little interview for us. Could you talk about who is also on our call here? Sure, I'm happy to. Um, this is sort of a, a dream of mine. Uh, I grew up listening to our guest today, uh, Alan Cross, who is a broadcaster, a musicologist, a a legend in Canadian radio and across the border here into uh, Buffalo area. Um, Alan has been on 102.1 The Edge in Toronto for ever at this point, I think. Is Pretty much. Well, forever is a, um, a technical term, and it's it's actually accurate. Oh, yeah. well, there we go. Um, he, he used to Alan, broadcast on Iroquois Radio way back in the day. Way back when, yeah. Back. Original broadcaster here. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but uh, Alan has been the, the music director, the programming director, I think, at some point, and has been the host of a little gem called The Ongoing History of New Music since 1993. Uh, recently celebrated its 20th anniversary. But it wasn't exactly something that you dreamed to do, from what I understand. Is that correct? Oh, oh hell no. <laughs> uh, what happened was I was working for the radio station, which was called CFNY at the time. Right. And it had been purchased by a new consortium. And they were going to change this alt-rock radio station from what it was and had been since 1977 into uh, a country station. But then along came these uh, really annoying bands like Nirvana and Pearl Jam <laughs> and Soundgarden, and they started getting big, and the kids started, you know, kind of digging them. So they decided, well, okay, so what we're going to do is going to ride this this trend as far as we possibly can. We'll beat this one like a dead mule, and then we'll move on and switch to country. But in order to do this, this weird new music with these kids in their flannel, what we're going to have to do is explain to the audience exactly who these bands are, what they're all about, where they came from, and basically put things into context. So they looked around, they found one guy on staff with a history degree, which was me, and they came up with a plan. And the plan went like this. We're going to sever you. In other words, we're going to sever your full-time employment. We're going to hire you back on to be a part-timer where you will instead of working on um, weekday afternoons from 2 till 6, you are going to work on weekend mornings from 6 till noon. And the rest of the week, we will hire you as a contractor to put out this, to create this new radio program called The Ongoing History of New Music. Yes, we know it's a terrible name. Yes, we know this is a bad idea, but it's what we're going to do for now. Besides, it's only going to last for six or nine months and then we'll fire you out right then. Oh. Uh, I had just bought a new house. I had uh, just gotten married. I had no portable skills. So despite my protestations, I was given the job and I had to make lemonade out of those lemons. And I, I, I had no choice. I mean, it was, it was like I say, a terrible radio name for a radio program. And nobody was, everybody was actually getting out of doing these kinds of long-form documentaries on radio at the time. So why are you assigning me this? Mm -hmm. Yet it started. 
and with the exception of a three-year break where I actually was fired, uh, I've been doing it for 20 years. When you came back on the air, it was actually a short time when I was living back in Buffalo before relocating here at first. And uh, my best friend gave me a lot of grief, said that, you know, Alan somehow knew you were coming back to town and he decided to <laughs> kick off the program then. And this was before, for a, a few years, Alan was also one of the hosts of a podcast called Geeks and Beats, which is how I first came to to know or to have conversations with Alan. Um, it was a two or three year podcast that talked about music and technology and all manner of all manner of geekery, really. Uh, it was a yeah. lot of fun. But ongoing history started off, like you said, you know, what is this grunge thing about? What is this music? Um, it's become something kind of different. I mean, there were books at the beginning. There are no longer books now. How has the process changed for you for researching? Um, well, back, the, back at the beginning, when we were when I started this, I mean, there was no internet. Um, there were very few books written on alternative music because at that time it was this weird, fringy stuff that nobody was talking about. It could get you thousands of books of the Beatles and Led Zeppelin and Rolling Stone, but if you wanted to have something on the Clash or the Sex Pistols or the Rollins, those things just did not exist. Mm -hmm. So it was very hard at the beginning. Uh, fortunately, I had access to some record company files and some very good used record stores and a couple of people who were willing to teach me a few things. So it became, at the, it was at the beginning what the uh, corporate overlords wanted it to be, a simple exposition of the history and the context of alternative music. But after, over the years, you know, they never really... They just kind of left me alone to do what I wanted. And the cool thing was that I was able to evolve the program away from being just the simple exposition biography, rather, and into something a little bit more deeper, where you explain why things are the way they are with some analysis and some you know, deep explanation about certain things. And 752 programs later, it's, it's, it's still going. I still do the odd bit of uh, the odd biography because it's what the audience wants. They want sort of like a behind the music look at, at an artist uh, or, or, or something. Yeah, usually it's an artist. But m my favorite ones are the ones dealing with technology. They're the ones uh, dealing with uh, you know, why a certain thing happened or why a certain thing turned out the way it did mm -hmm. or you know, just tearing apart and deconstructing certain things to offer more context. I think that's really important because in an era where we have streaming music services, there is no allegiance or, con or context with the music that anybody listens to. They listen to a song, consume it, discard it, move on. And it's not like it used to be where people spend hard-earned money to buy an album and then by God they were going to listen to that album over and over again until they learned every single <laughs> word on that record because they paid for it and they had to milk as much enjoyment out of it as they possibly can. When we got to the era of, of file sharing and streaming music services, what we ended up with are people who were just grazing. And we spent way too much time searching and researching music and not enough time actually savoring it. And if you talk to any sort of legacy artist, they, they go, you know, we're, we're not building relationships with fans anymore because they find a song they like listen to it for a while and then disappear. So I'm trying to, I'm, I'm the salmon going against the stream on that one. And at the same time, we have more access to our favorite bands, our favorite musicians, our favorite whatever than we've ever had before through things like social media. And you know, these are conversations that I know, you know, have, have been going on for years now, but what does that mean for an artist where you have maybe more people listening to you or more people can find you but you don't have that dedication, you don't have that relationship. People aren't as invested in you and your work as maybe they were 
five, 10, 20 years ago. Well, this is why there's such a crisis in music right now. The superstar artists, the legacy artists that have been around from the 60s, 70s, 80s, and even 90s, they're doing okay because they have a, a large fan base rooted in the original base of the music industry, which was selling pieces of plastic to consumers. So they are established and their audience in many cases has grown up with them. Where we have the crisis is with the middle class of music and the emerging artists. There is so much noise out there that they can't be heard. And if you're, you know, a reasonably good, you know, let's call it a middle class musician who is able to fill a decent sized club, it's a constant struggle. You have to be on the road all the time because you're not going to sell enough records mm. to, to like you used to. So, you know, what are the revenue streams? Um, what are the costs? What are the skills you have to have as a musician these days? It used to be all you needed to do was to pick up a guitar and, and play. Now you have to know HTML5. I mean, it's, 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 it's very, very difficult. And revenues from the sale of music, whether that be physical product like CDs or vinyl, uh, digital product like uh, iTunes or streaming, I mean, it's just not what it used to be. I mean, this is why... You're seeing so many old acts like, you know, Springsteen, Metallica and, you know, name it, being out on the road more often because they're making so much money, so much more money doing that rather than releasing records. I'll, I'll give you an example. Uh, this uh, week coming up looks like it could be the worst week ever for album sales in the United States. One of the biggest selling albums in what we call the SoundScan era, which dates back to 1991, is Metallica's Black Album. It has sold somewhere in the U.S., somewhere north of 15, 16 million copies. This week, in a nation of 320 million, the Black Album sold 5,500 copies. That's it. And the problem there is that in the old days, if you were the Beatles or the Doors or the Stones, you would release what would become a classic album, and that would essentially become an annuity for the rest of your life. You could go to the mailbox every six months and there would be a check with seven figures on it. Wow. That's not happening anymore. So you have these guys who are 60, 65, 70, 75, who have got a lifestyle that they've become used, that, that they've become used to, who aren't being able to support it anymore. The only way to do that is to Oh, do you think that Guns N' Roses wants to get back together? Do you think that you know Ozzy Osbourne wants to be on the road with Black Sabbath again with Tommy Iommi, uh, Tony Iommi, uh, you know, suffering from leukemia? Uh, I mean, this is this is a, this is an interesting time in music, and we're seeing a terrible, terribly difficult transition to whatever's coming next. So can we talk a little bit about then what the role of the the music journalist is at this point? We know that the uh, the music industry has been disrupted. W where do you fit into this mix? Well, the music journalist is certainly in crisis now. And I'll give you a couple of reasons why. First of all, everybody can have a blog and everybody can have an opinion. It costs nothing. The barrier to entry to become a music journalist is pretty much zero. The music that you can review or talk about costs you nothing. And as long as you've got a computer and a broadband connection, and you could call yourself a music journalist. So that has, this glut of wannabe writers has driven the, the price down as to what you can charge. Mm -hmm. Secondly, the magazines have disappeared or are beginning to disappear. Music magazines for the longest time were supported by record company advertising. And as budgets shrink, 
There's less advertising. You see the magazine shrink. Uh, I mean, think about Rolling Stone. Rolling Stone used to be this this tabloid sized thing. Now it's a tiny little, you know, um, airline magazine type size thing. And a lot of that has to do with increased costs and 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 less revenue from big labels that would advertise records. The other thing that's going on is is you know, are people interested in serious music criticism anymore? I mean, some people like to say they are, but you know, when Kendrick Lamar drops an album with no uh, with no notice, and everybody expects some kind of opinion on this thing within seconds of it arriving, mm-hmm. you know, there's no time for sitting around listening to an album over and over and over again to you know get grasp the nuances of it and to create a critique of it that actually makes sense and finally the album itself is in crisis because people want the Chinese menu when it comes to music I want that song that song that song and I will never be forced to buy that entire album again I mean there are those of us who will always buy albums because we believe that 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 body of work is an important artistic statement and we want to participate in it but there are while there are millions of us there were billions of people who are just willing to listen to to consume music song by song. Yeah, it's strange because on the one hand, from a listener's standpoint, you do have that Chinese menu that you're able to get whatever you want pretty much whenever you want. And But then on the other hand, you know, the, the structures that were supporting the old music system, that they're supporting those artists are so fractured that, you know... On, if you're not supporting them in a way that, that's going to benefit them to, to, to continue to produce, then this whole structure just doesn't seem to work. It, it, it collapses. And, and the motivation for people to make music collapses. I have this theory. Like right now, if you look at modern alt-rock, mainstream rock, there are no angry guitars. All the guitars for, 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 you know, we think back to grunge and we had, you know, all these, these loud, angry bands, your Rage Against the Machines, your Nirvanas, your Soundgarden, your Pearl Jams. This generation has so far failed to produce any mass appeal bands of that genre. And you wonder why. And I think one of the reasons may be that people realize, like, oh, what's the point? There's no... Nobody's making any money making music anymore, so why should I invest in a guitar and an amp and even try? Maybe what I'll do is just, you know, I'll pick up a ukulele or my dad's banjo or or, or learn to play something rudimentary on a synthesizer through, you know, Pro Tools or, or GarageBand. And, and, and I'll write an introspective song moaning about how awful life is and how nobody understands me and how I have to grow up and I wish somebody would take me to church. You know, these are... It's, it's something that I've been, been writing about over the past week or so. Where are all the angry guitar songs? But I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that uh, people just don't feel that music is the vocation it used to be. So what does that mean for for the fans? Again, we have more interaction with, with the bands that we love. But if they're not putting out things that necessarily speak to how we as listeners are feeling at any given moment... Does that mean, you know, more flash-in-the-pan, one-hit wonders? Does that mean that established bands no longer want to put out songs that are, are more aggressive if people are more in the, the, the I don't want to say whiny, mopey side of things, but kind of. without. Oh, I'll, say, I'll say whiny, mopey side of things. Okay. 
put up um, tiny mopey songs. <laughs> I, I, I think we're in a bit of a transition because a lot of the current generation for their aggressive music have this giant library of music from the past to choose from. And the it is no longer verboten or frowned upon to be a fan of your older brother's music or your parents' music or even your grandparents' music. So if I'm 15 years old and I am feeling like a 15-year-old teenager, which is full of angst and whatever, and I want something aggressive, I have 60 years of rock and roll to choose from. So I'll go back and listen to Led Zeppelin or Black Sabbath or Van Halen. Great music from you know, the 60s and the 70s and the 80s whose themes and feelings of rage are every bit as applicable today as they were back then. I don't have to make the new music because there is this giant catalog, this giant reservoir of stuff back there ready for me, and it's good because it's stood the test of time. So until we exhaust that, nobody is necessarily interested in making that anymore. Now, I do have to make a caveat here. There is always going to be metal. Metal is always going to be angry. Uh, there is always going to be a subset of, of bands who are artists who are looking to make angry, aggressive music. Uh, and of course, there's hip hop. But what I'm saying with my argument is that as far as the mainstream zeitgeist goes, there is nothing like we saw with the indie rock revolution earlier this century. There's nothing like grunge that we saw in the 90s. There's nothing like hardcore that we saw in the 80s, punk that we saw in the 70s, the protest music surrounding the Vietnam War and the civil rights movement in the 1960s. There has been or seems to be a break with history when it comes to this generation. The music is out there. It's just not bubbling to the top. So you talked about the, the great you know, this backlog of music uh, that, that's out there and that, that you know, that 15-year-old fan, you know, I'm, I'm an older gentleman like you, and I remember, you know, I grew up in the Midwest, and a lot of, you know, the punk bands, things like the Ramones, never ever seeped into, you know, never came across my radar because the local radio stations didn't play that. The access that I had to that the, those bands was limited. And it wasn't until later that I saw that there was all this other music going on. Sort of one of the things that you, you were talking about is that there's this vast um, catalog of music out there that seems to be an opportunity for people like you who try to put context into, oh, you like this band that, that, that put out an album you know, this year? Well, you know what? They're very much like or they came from uh, this type of band that was 10, 20 years past. I mean, there seems to be... a a place for people to put music in context still. Absolutely. There is, and it's very important. The problem is we're letting algorithm. And okay. we, we don't have enough people, human beings, to take a younger human being and say, hey, you know what, if you like this, why don't you try that? And the streaming music services and other algorithmic-based services are doing their best. And music discovery is the biggest thing. but we tend to, or they tend to, concentrate on new releases, emerging artists, and not necessarily dig deep enough into the past for you know, some, some of these you know, uh, legacy artists to, to bubble forward. Uh, this is why I, you know, radio continues to be very important, and human curators continue to be very important, because if you're listening to, I don't know, Hosier, for example, 
chances are if somebody were to expose you to Van Morrison, you'd probably like Van Morrison. But who is out there that's going to say, who's going to draw this line between who is your Van Morrison? Well, that's a, an algorithm that may not do it, but a human being would. Yeah, that's, uh, and this is something we haven't mentioned, is the, the, the absence of the uh, record store. The, uh, the, the, that is a resource. Seeing music that stacked similarly to other music or having people who were music aficionados who could point you in one direction. Oh, you bought this album. Hey, have you heard this band? You know, right. that one-on-one is just not happening. Or it's, well, or it's being replaced by the algorithm. I, I remember walking into many record stores and they'd always have something playing. Mm-hmm. And you would your ears would perk up and go, hmm, what's, what's this? I've never heard it before. And you go to the guy behind the counter or the girl behind the counter and say, hey, what are you playing? And they would go, it's this. Oh, I'll take that. Mm-hmm. Oh, you like that? Well, then you might want to try this as well. I mean, these were hardcore music fans that were excited about sharing the music that they loved and the music that they were selling in their store. There's a great scene in the movie High Fidelity where Jack Black says, watch me sell a Bell and Sebastian record to some guy. So he puts this this record on by this twee Scottish band called Bell and Sebastian and inevitably somebody comes up to the counter and says, hey, what's this? It's really good. Jack Black gives him a hard time because he's never heard of Bell and Sebastian before and he was just baiting him. And that used to happen all the time. Uh, for me, the, the movie High Fidelity is, is, is not so much a, a drama as it is a uh, documentary. <laughs> There's something to be said also about, I mean, what we're, what we're really getting at here is the community around music. And yes, we have that online now more than we ever did before, but it's not, it's not the same. We don't sit and talk about a record. You don't get a new piece of vinyl and sit with your friends and put it on the turntable and turn it up and go through the liner notes meticulously and and read everything there is there because inevitably in the thank you notes would be you know thank you to this band for helping us out with this or thank you to this producer and then you look up that producer and what else they've worked with um in a way it's like we should have more of that going on but if there's no albums being sold there's no liner notes to read yeah and here's the interesting thing when it came to music we used to go out to connect that too now we don't have to. Right. Uh, we can sit in front of our laptops or in front of our phones and feel that we're connected to the greater world of music without leaving the house. And the music that we're getting is artist, title, album, song length, year of release, and that's it. So we, again, you know, I, I've talked to, to Ray Daniels, who was the manager of Rush for many, many years, still is. And, you know, he's just experience. You know, we're not building a relationship with the audience because in the old days, they used to sit in front of the speakers with the album pouring over every square centimeter of that record, trying to divine as much as they could of the mystery that was this band, was this music. There's no mystery to music anymore. You know, you can try like Sia or, or, or Kanye with the weirdness. You can try and add mystery and hype to it, but people see right through it or they don't see it at all. And, uh, you know, I wanted to know desperately when, when you know, Led Zeppelin 4, you know, here's an album that came out. They, the um, artist was not even mentioned on anywhere on the album. There was this poor old man with some sticks on the back, on his back on the cover. There was uh, these mysterious symbols on, on the record that meant something. And, and you looked at this and you studied this and you listened to the music and you listened to the lyrics. You tried to figure out what it all meant. Mm-hmm. Mystery is gone. Mystery is history. Is music demanding enough? For, for listeners these days? 
Well, again, what are you talking about? Are you talking about the music that's made um, uh, for today's market? If you are, it's not because there's a very good book called Inside the Music Machine by John Seabrook. Uh, he's a New Yorker uh, writer. I was on a TV show with him this past week, and he talks about the the, the, the factory manufacturer of music these days with producers like Max Martin. And the whole idea is focused on the single song, not the album, and they spend an awful lot of time and money and talent creating single songs to become to become hits. And there's a very factory-driven way of doing this. You have the guys that do the beats, you have the guys that do the hooks, you have the guys that do the top line, you have the guys that do the lyrics, and only then does the artist come in and sing. Mm -hmm. And they have these songwriting camps where they'll get 40 people together in a mansion someplace, and they'll all you know collaborate on it. It's like a writing camp, and then out of that will come some beats and some song fragments that people will take and go off and use the next time Katy Perry needs an album. So it's it's... And the reason they do this is because the public is extraordinarily fickle and they want to minimize the amount of uh, risk when it comes to putting out a song. They, they need hits. So if we have all this effort going into writing the songs with all, you know, ticking all the boxes and there is a formula, uh, then they, they have a better chance of, of making some money on that. But doesn't that formulaic approach to music also? in a way, discourage fans who are looking for something a little more, something like music that matters, music that has a little more heft. Well, again, I mean, we're talking from our older perspective. I mean, there's a whole generation that believes that talent is something that you see on The Voice. True. So, and talent is something, they, they don't care that it's Pro Tools and uh, auto-tuned to the max. Uh, it, it's just something they like. They think that, that you know, the way music is made and again, this is not everybody. We've got to make sure that we're not generalizing, but we're talking about a very large part of the music consumer market. And the, that very large part, they are casual music fans. They like to sing along to a song. They like to tap along on the steering wheel as they drive. Uh, they buy less than $30 worth of music a year. That's a fact. And they uh, are just, you know, it's in, in one year out the other. We are not talking about serious music aficionados, mm -hmm. and the billions of casual music fans are the ones that make all that help make all the money, so the rest of us can be serviced with with bands that we actually like. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and just I just want to mention this that uh, our podcast, um, w one of our podcast partners, is the Association of Alternative News Media, and that's a lot of alternative newspapers across the country, and one of their big areas that they really kind of focus on is local music. And where does the local music scene sort of figure into this larger picture? Oh, that's, that's again, that's tough. These are the guys at the bottom of the food chain. They are, in many cases, extremely talented musicians with a tremendous amount of passion. But the signal-to-noise ratio is so high in favor of the noise that uh, it's very hard for them to break through, and then everybody has an idea of what needs to be done to to break through. Well, you got to do this with social media. You got to do this with YouTube. You got to do this with touring. You got to do this with uh, playing live. All it's it's tough. It is it is. There's more music than ever, and it's tougher to break through. One of the real issues is that the traditional cultural filters, record labels, record stores, music video channels, radio stations. 
they don't have the clout that they used to because they've been completely disintermediated by technology. If I can get whatever song I want, whenever I want, wherever I happen to be, whatever device I happen to have, I don't need to turn on the radio. I don't need to turn, I don't need to sit in front of television and wait for MTV, assuming that MTV still plays videos. I mean, we used to sit in front of the TV for hours waiting for MTV to play the video that we wanted. Yeah, I, I remember when MTV was the disruptor. It was a huge disruptor, and it actually saved the music industry from a terrible post-disco crash. In about 1980, music sales for the first time actually went down and returns went up because everybody had shipped out all these disco records that nobody wanted, and there was a terrible recession. If, if you're old enough, you remember that uh, at that time, a mortgage was 22%. It was an awful, awful time, and MTV comes along, and even all the record labels thought it was a waste of time. They thought, well, here is MTV went to the record labels and said, look, you have these promotional films. You've been making them so you can play them at conventions or you can send them to standard TV shows so your artist doesn't have to show up. Give us what you have and you know, we'll put them on and you know, we'll see what happens. Maybe, maybe it'll generate some interest. So uh, MTV launched with about 250 videos, 30 of which were by Rod Stewart, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> it certainly True seemed fact. that way. I didn't realize that. Wow. True fact. And uh, a lot of, of cable companies wouldn't carry it because they didn't understand the point. But some of the smaller cable companies did. For example, there's a story about Oklahoma City when Duran Duran released uh, three videos from their Rio album in 1982, I guess it was. All of a sudden, in Oklahoma City, you couldn't find a Duran Duran record. And they figured it out it's because of, of all the videos that came from, from that Rio album. So, and then of course there was the famous I Want My MTV mm -hmm. um, marketing campaign done by artists themselves. And MTV blew up and basically set the agenda for the rest of the 80s and well into the 90s. Meanwhile, the record companies, who are benefiting by the way, because they also simultaneously introduced this new thing called the compact disc with a very large margin. They promised the price would go down, but it never did. And they made more money than ever before. But there was always this nagging thing in the back of their head that, you know what, we made a really big mistake with MTV. We gave them all our stuff for free, and they built this massive reputation and massive company based on our product. We're not going to let that happen again. But then it did happen again with iTunes. Mm -hmm. uh, they, you know, they gave the keys to all their music to Steve Jobs who then sliced and diced everything up into individual songs and they lost control and Apple became the biggest company in the world. So now we have a situation where we have streaming music services and they want to stream music from the record labels. But the record labels are still smarting from the MTV experience and from the iTunes experience. So this is why they're giving the uh, streaming music services such a very hard time when it comes to rates and advances and all the other stuff that they're doing. So uh, the, the, the people who get caught in all this are the artists and composers. And the ones that get hurt the most are the ones at the bottom, the ones that are just starting out. That's something that I wanted to ask you about. Um, there's there's a really interesting lawsuit going on right now with Spotify and streaming rights and royalties and how much people are getting paid per song, per play. Is this going to be a disruptor in a negative way? Much MTV was a disruptor, you could argue, in a positive way. Is this 
there's no way that what's happening with the Spotify lawsuit right now, um, and of course the other elements that are also involved in that same lawsuit, there's no way this is beneficial to anyone, right? Well, it should be. These two lawsuits are very complicated. And basically, it's all about data. Uh, Spotify and all the other streaming music services are supposed to have a database detailing on a monthly basis what songs get streamed how many times. The problem is that the data that they have and the stuff that they've been reporting is incomplete. So they have this huge pile of money sitting there with no one to pay it up to because they have not created an infrastructure whereby they can tell the difference between this song and that song and who should get paid for it. Now, it's not entirely Spotify's fault because this is something that has been, this has been the situation for mechanical royalties going back a hundred years or more. But it looked to me that thing, somebody was being disingenuous a little bit because I saw a list that had, uh, you know, they couldn't determine there's 80 or 90 Bob Dylan songs that they couldn't figure out were actually Bob Dylan songs. So Bob Dylan hadn't been paid for these songs, even though they've been streamed. It's, 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 you think that there would be a worldwide database of every recorded song available. And there is something akin to that, highly incomplete, but all songs are supposed to have something called an ISRC number. Not every song does. Uh, But the ISRC number is a unique identifier that tells you who wrote the song, who remixed the song, who performed the song, who did everything on the song. And until we have a global database where every single recording in the history of humanity has an ISRC number, we're going to have this dirty, incomplete data. Um, so back to these lawsuits. So Spotify has not been accused, or has been accused of not been paying out all the royalties due these artists because their data collection reporting is inadequate. There has been a semi-settlement recently, but uh, this is not going to be with us for, this is going to be with us for a while because all the other streaming music services uh, face the same same problems. And there's a company in the U.S. called uh, Audium that is, is trying to create this database, but they represent a number of artists. <laughs> there, are, there are other different companies that represent the streaming rights of different artists and there's not like one body that comes together. So Audion was noticing that, wait a second, um, we get the number of streams that Metallica had last month, but if I look at the revenue invoice, they don't match up. Why? And that's basically, we're trying to get those two things to match up. If you get streamed, you should get played. Now, the other thing we should talk about when it comes to how much artists are getting paid that's not Spotify being mean. Sure. That is the uh, negotiated settlement that they carried out with, and again, they were at a disadvantage. They were the uh, weaker party. They had these are uh, these had these uh, these negotiations with record labels, music publishers, rights holders, copyright boards, and everybody. And this is the number that they came to. The problem is that the determination of how much an artist is due is very non-transparent, very opaque. It goes into this middleman black hole and at the end it goes into this middleman black hole and the artist gets a check 
there's no real explanation as to why that check is that amount. It's kind of like you working for a company and your paycheck gets deposited into a bank, direct deposit. And then you go to the bank to withdraw your paycheck and you notice that the amount is this. So you ask the bank, why is my, I work more than this, why is my account this much less than I think it should be? And the black of the bank says, that's what we think you're worth. Well, but I did all this other work. Yeah, yeah, but we think that you should get this much money. The other thing that a lot of people don't realize is that uh, the record labels, a lot of record labels have equity positions in the streaming music services. So a bit of a conflict of interest there. Oh, I see what you're saying. Okay. Yeah. Why would they want to pay more if they don't have to? Well, yeah. I mean, this is why we would keep our money because there, I can't remember what the percentage is. It's below 20%, but you know, Spotify is owned in a large part by a couple of major labels. Surprise, surprise. Mm-hmm. So, so um, what do you see? Let's sort of wrap this up here. What is it that you see? Where are we going? What, what do you think is going to happen in the next few years? Are we going to... Are we going to ever have uh, another, like, you know, a punk or grunge or, you know, hip hop explosion that's going to sort of change the directions of things? Or are we just going to sort of glumph along here? It's the latter. Um, Because anybody can be their own music director, there is no opportunity for consensus on a deeper level other than the mainstream music, uh, music fan. I mean, all the, all the, um, uh, the casual music fans, they can agree on Adele, they can agree on Justin Bieber, they can agree on Katy Perry, they can agree on Taylor Swift, which is all mass appeal stuff. As for something that will bubble up and turn into something spectacular, like we saw with grunge and hip hop and you know, name another genre, uh, because there's no consensus, it's going to be very difficult. When I was in school, grade 10, there were 25 people in the class, five people were country music fans and 20 fans were KISS fans. <laughs> And we all realized that KISS, we all believed that KISS was the greatest band in the world because the guy on the radio told us so. Because when we went into the record store, that's all we saw. Because when we picked up a copy of Rolling Stone, that's all we read about. You know, so KISS had to be good, so we had to like them. It's not that it's been flipped on its head. I can like whoever I want from whatever era uh, at whatever time of the day I choose. So without this idea of... Uh, Oh, what's the term I'm looking for? A critical mass of, of people coming together to, to, to say that this band, this sound, this scene sounds good, and we're going to stick with it for more than a week. I don't think we're going to see anything. So th- there's a couple of things that are, that are probably going to happen is that we're going to see more lowest common, lowest common denominator popular music because of the, uh, the factory nature of the way popular music is made right now. Uh, we're going to look at people who go to the data from someplace like Spotify and say, oh, uh, the average person listens to a song for 7 to 10 seconds before they skip to the next one, an unfamiliar song for 7 to 10 seconds before they skip to the next one. Well, that means we're going to have to change the nature of our songwriting and make sure that in the first 7 to 10 seconds there is something that, uh, that uh, attracts somebody's attention. You know, are we going to have uh, bands like Pink Floyd that were studio bands and all they did was curl themselves up into a studio and spend weeks and months and maybe even years creating something that could not be created in the real world? You really do need a recording studio to do certain things. You can't do everything on your laptop with GarageBand in your bedroom. So I don't know where things are going. I do know that the labels have, after 15 years, reasserted their dominance in terms of the way business is conducted. 
they are looking to make sure that they maintain that dominance and not give it away again after giving it away twice. And as for the general public, I don't understand, for example, right now, why with all the weirdness that is happening in the news, we don't have a lot of angry guitar music. I mean, we have the possibility of President Donald Trump. We have ISIS. We have Zika. We have crooks on Wall Street that are not going to jail. We have terrorism. We have all kinds of weird, horrible things happening in the world. And usually, not usually, but always in the past, young people have said, enough's enough. I have something to say, and I'm going to scream my rage through music. You're not doing that now, largely, I think, in part to the fact that I can do it on Twitter and Facebook. Uh, I can say I can I can get my rage out by being a troll or making a comment or liking or disliking something or retweeting something or changing the avatar on my on my Twitter account. I am protesting virtually. There, I've done it as an individual. I've let my 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 position be known to the world, to the universe, and now I can go on to do something else. And you've really done nothing. Well, that's a shame. <laughs> yeah, we is. lose out. We lose out on the because it's the anger that that, that that foments the change. Yeah, it is. And and without, I mean, one of the the, the fascinating things that I've been watching is about the U.S. election is is the anger. Now, there's two types of it. There's the the Donald Trump anger, and then there's the bright-eyed and bushy-tailed anger that we see with Bernie Sanders supporters, and they tend to be a lot, you know, a lot younger. And I. Uh, We'll see which one prevails. We will see. It's going to be a long time till November, unfortunately. But that's, oh. a different, that's the side of the lake. That's a different podcast. <laughs> it is a completely different podcast. But do you know? Do you know what? It's all. It's all connected. It's all the same. It's you know the anger that we feel about politics, the anger that we feel about the you know the lack of your voice being heard in 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 the larger world. I mean, it's all the same thing. Whether it's music or whether it's it's social media or whether it's you know, uh, writing a, a critique in, in in a newspaper or on a news outlet. It's all. Oh, and let's let's not even begin to talk about the state of journalism. I am a hardcore print fan. I mean, I have four newspapers delivered to my house every day. I designed the island in my kitchen to be large enough for me to spread the New York Times out oh, wow. uh, without having to curl over it at the edges. And in fact, uh, today's Sunday, and I haven't read my Times yet, but I'm looking forward to it this afternoon. It is, I'm so sad at the state of newspapers because I love them so much. Yeah. You're talking to two print journalists. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, I when I go to England, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I, I usually time my, my meetings in London for Monday. So I fly in Saturday night and I get there Sunday morning. After I get acclimatized, I go to the news agent and I buy about 12 pounds worth of newspapers oh, wow. and spend the whole day in a pub going through every single one of them. And you know, there's nothing like the Times mm -hmm. that's as big as a tablecloth <laughs> uh, to be able to go through it all. It's just the best. It sounds like a good day. It is a very good day. And if at all, you know everything there is to know about British celebrities that you have no idea who they are, but you've got a really good view of, of, of the United Kingdom, Europe, and, and much of the rest of the world. Well, we can't keep you from uh, any, any longer from enjoying your news fix. Thanks a lot, Alan. This has been, been great. 
you know, I'm hopeful for music. I'm hopeful of sort of the, the, the future of what digital can do for music. But certainly, like, like everything else, it, it, it's, you know, this is something that's been disrupted and, and we haven't seen where this is going to be. I'd hate to think that we lose music because it can't sustain itself. Uh, we won't lose music. Music will always be with us. It's just that we have to remember that we're on the outgoing generation now. The music of the future is going to be determined by people who are 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 12, 15 years old. Uh, and we have no choice in that matter. Music well, is always driven by the young, and we'll just have to wait and see where they take us. Well, and it's and, and I think that's the way it should be, I think. Yeah, I mean, we had our time. Yeah, okay. Let's, uh, <laughs> wow. We, we, did, we did plenty. We should be plenty that we can be proud of, plenty that maybe we shouldn't be proud of. Um, but uh, thanks a lot for uh, talking, Amber. Thank, er, Alan, thanks for setting this up, Amber. Uh, this has been great. Next time on It's All Journalism. I think we've got a lot of outlets now, you know, really looking at the violence committed against especially transgender women of color. That was a topic that came up in a lot of, to, with a lot of people I spoke with as being a huge and worrisome issue for them that they really just wanted to see uh, coverage of. I think in the data that we do have, which comes from like a couple studies, uh, say that, you know, there's a lot more homelessness, a lot more unemployment, um, a lot more poverty in the transgender, you know, community than, you know, than otherwise. So, you know, that's kind of an issue for Caitlyn Jenner. You only talk about her. But that is an issue for a lot of other people who don't who aren't as lucky in a lot of ways. In our next episode, I talked to freelance journalist Sarah Morrison about a recent story she wrote about covering the transgender community. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the changing state of digital news. Find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. You can also find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. It's All Journalism is produced in partnership with the Association of Alternative News Media. Thanks for listening.